Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Kim Shelton joins the show for a conversation about Mycenaean settlements in the Bronze Age on mainland Greece. Dr. Shelton is Associate Professor of Classics and Director of the Nemea Center for Classical Archaeology at the University of California, Berkeley, based in the U.S. She directs three excavation programs in Greece. Petsas House at the prehistoric site of Mycenae, the Classical Sanctuary of Zeus in Nemea, and the Late Bronze Age Cemetery of Idonia. And Dr. Shelton joins the show from the state of California in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Kim. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's good to connect with you, Kim. So to create enough context and background for the conversation, Kim, and we're uh, chatting about more of the settlements and what's known about the, the architecture and so some of these, um, the, the buildings that the Mycenaeans uh, had in the, in the Bronze Age. Um, before we get more into that part, the particulars there, can you share to create enough background and context for the conversation who the Myce- Mycenaeans were? Sure. Um, They were the prehistoric Greeks. The name Mycenaean was assigned to this culture before it was really understood who they were and how they connected to the rest of of Greek prehistory and history. Um, Of course, the name comes from the site of Mycenae, which was first uh, one of the first sites excavated by Heinrich Schliemann back in the 19th century, and, and he coined name for the culture, for the civilization that lived and created that site and other sites like it, Mycenaean after the, after the site. Um, we continue to use it today, although it is, um, it, it's a bit confusing when we use the term, whether we mean the people living at Mycenae or the people generally of the civilization who might be living elsewhere, such as the palatial site of Pylos or in prehistoric Athens or any of these other sites. So, um, but it has been around with us for a long time, so we do continue to use it. Other terms, though, that, that are used is the late Helladic period, um, the, the time period um, of the Bronze Age, when the Mycenaean civilization on the mainland of Greece was at its, at its height. What, um, so you mentioned some different locations there. Uh, what was the, the, their geographic demarcation of their civilization or civilizations? Well, it grows out of mainland Greece and the predominant sites were located in the Peloponnese in the southern part of Greece, although there were plenty of sites also in central Greece, all the way up um, into, I would say, the southern part of northern Greece. But they did expand over their history into the islands. Um, They had some uh, very strong relationship with the island of Crete as well. And we know that they expanded and and had a great desire to expand into the Eastern Mediterranean, especially into Western Anatolia, what is today Turkey. So in the, let's say, 14th and 13th centuries BCE, during what we call the Mycenaean palatial period. Um, That was really the time of the furthest expansion um, out across the Aegean um, and and parts of the Mediterranean into these other areas as well. But the core was the the mainland of Greece. 
Yeah, uh, Professor Louise Hitchcock of the University of Melbourne was on the show about a week ago. An episode was published. She's been on the show several times, and I know she's a long, long time friend of yours. Um, uh, and the last episode, uh, at the tail end of that, we were chatting about Minoan um, settlements. So on the island of, uh, again, using commendate terminology, the island of Crete. And uh, Professor Hitchcock mentioned that the uh, Mycenaeans had um, uh, gained hegemony. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm using it in my language, but basically gained hegemony at some, some point of of the island of Crete, and we agreed basically on uh, during the episode that we would we would cover that as a topic at uh, at, at 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 some point. So sure, yeah. So when it comes to the settlements, then so they're it's spread out. It's as in your response, you said there there are there, it, it got spread out with with this um, with this uh, with this state. So um, with this civilization or civilizations. Um, and why and why I say that? I guess I'll just bring that up too. Why I say civilization or civilizations? It's not fully clear to scholars the full um, governance structure of this uh, group of people, too, right? Right, that's right. And and of course, it does change over several hundred years. Um, it shifts quite a lot. Um, but I, I, we do have some examples of the sort of political, socio-political and economic systems that were in place, especially again in that, that palatial period in which we do have a number of central locations that uh, encompass a, a, a main settlement in their immediate uh, region, but also other settlements that seem to be within their purview. But there are also many regions, both on mainland Greece, but also as they expand into the islands and elsewhere, that didn't necessarily have these palatial centers, but yet had settlements of, of various sizes, and I imagine some kind of socio-political configurations um, working working together for lots of lots of social reasons and economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'll probably use. Uh, different terms throughout then and I'll and I'll probably be using the terms loosely in 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 that case then community communities um, etc so that everyone knows what I mean Um, so okay so how many approximate sites so physical sites so so areas have been linked to the Mycenaeans oh gosh um actual sites there are probably hundreds of them that are known primarily through survey, through observation of material on the surface, but the vast majority are still unexcavated. So when we look at the number of sites of which we have substantial archeological and even um, textual evidence, it's a much smaller number. It's in the the tens to twenties, but because of excavational bias, and the history of Mycenaean archaeology and prehistoric archaeology in the Aegean, the excavation started with the biggest sites. So we have, in fact, quite a lot of information now and it continues to grow about these palatial centers, what we call the citadels, the fortified palaces, and the settlements that are immediately um, in their vicinity and engaged with them. 
And then as we move away from those centers, we know of so many um, settlement sites, many cemeteries that are connected to those settlement sites, but the vast, vast majority are still unexcavated. So we really don't have um, all that much information as we go down, let's say, the, um, the settlement pattern scale. Okay. How do scholars link these sites to the Mycenaeans? What's the common, what are the major common traits yeah, that link them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's because of the pottery. That Mycenaean pottery is very distinctive, um, even on the surface. And when you are surveying and looking for the possibilities of sites that are covered, that are underground, there will be remains of pottery on the surface. And luckily for us, Mycenaean pottery is very easily identifiable, both um, in, in these situations where on, on, in settlements uh, there on the mainland, but also the existence of this pottery uh, in other cultural locations, say in the Eastern Mediterranean, it's very easily identifiable. And that's, that's great for us. It gives us a lot of information about them both at home and abroad. Okay, and so today we're focusing predominantly on what would be modern-day Greece, the main, the mainland of what would be modern-day uh, Greece. So if if we um, so if we zoom on, on zoom in on that area, how many sites have been excavated to a reasonable degree and are like and that are linked to the Mycenaeans, Kim? Um, on the mainland itself, um. There are, I would say, 20 to 25 sites that have have been investigated to some extent. There are maybe 10 to 15 that are um, pretty significantly excavated to the the degree that we have a good sense of their full um, stratigraphic history over time and also uh, the extent of the the sites, how, how big they were originally. So if, uh, and so you said roughly 20 to 25 have been reasonably excavated? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, out of, so what percentage of those would have uh, at least one palatial building? Um, let's see. We have one, two, three, four, five, six um, that are for certain palatial centers. There's a seventh that is very, very likely and is currently under excavation. Um, and then there's a few others that, that could be, but we don't have sort of the, the standard characteristics that we use to define a palatial center, which includes um, a central palace with a megaron and uh, linear B uh, written documents. Most of them have some type of fortification wall, but not all of them. Um, and this, these types of characteristics. It's uh, lots of examples of wall painting, fresco wall painting, uh, and things like that. Where these settlements were built, is, is there, can you describe the, the, the topography, if there's any consistency? And if there's not, please describe that as to as well in terms of like the the, the, the terrain and if there if you could tell there was any um, uh, real selection and thought put towards building the settlement where it ended up being built. 
Right, obviously there's some, there's some variety region to region because of the regional geographies being different. But I would say in general, they choose not to um, build directly on the coast. Um, Tiran's is one, one exception for that. Uh, they tend to build on a height, which gives a, a great amount of visibility of the land surrounding the site, but they do not choose the highest heights, which in many cases are difficult to access. So they both um, want visibility, they want natural protectedness of being on, let's call it a low height, but they also demand accessibility, both from within and probably people coming from further away. Um, and so they, they choose um, the correct or the, the right level of hill for that. So both protection, but also accessibility. Okay. In that episode with Professor Hitchcock, she had mentioned that on Crete with the Minoans, there were palatial buildings, there were villas, and then we got into a conversation about residential type units. Right. Is it, so when it comes to the, the My Mycenaeans, on the mainland, um, is there, so there's, there's palatial buildings, you said in some cases, is there clearly units that are used only for residential and is, are, are there any units that scholars uh, define as a villa? No, we do not have that same kind of settlement structure on the mainland as there, as there is on Crete. Uh, when the Mycenaeans are on Crete, we see them um, kind of occupying some of those spaces and some of those types of settlements, but they don't bring that home to the mainland and recreate it. So instead what you have are um, these central palatial um, sites with very large, extensive settlements, um, right, both within a fortification system and outside surrounding that fortification system. And then you have a larger region, um, sort of catchment zone, in which you will have um, other settlements, some of them larger, some of them smaller, depending, I think, just on their, probably their relationship to the center, what they offer economically, and of course the distance from the center, they can be larger, potentially closer by, and then they get a little smaller, going further away into the border regions with the next, the next area. Um, but we, all of them, again, most of those settlements have not been fully excavated or even partially excavated. So we're going mostly on, on survey data. But for most of the Mycenaean period, we do not seem to have these independent structures that are, that are present throughout the landscape the way we see a villa um, functioning on, on Crete. Um, if there are such sort of central units that are both habitation but also probably play an important economic role in the region, they must be within larger settlements. And we, you know, obviously because of lack of excavation, we haven't, we haven't been able to identify those yet. Those um, settlements that haven't been excavated, so those, those are identified, but for whatever reasons, they just haven't been excavated yet? Yes, that's right. There's just not enough time, money, or archaeologists, basically. Um, but some of them are, are uh, underneath other sites. So a good example is the 
Mycenaean site of Persimna. I wrote, actually wrote my dissertation about the cemeteries at that site. Um, it is underneath the later archaic and classical sanctuary of Hera, what we call the Argive Horion. So you can't take out a later sanctuary to fully access the Mycenaean settlement, even if you really want to, you, you can't do that. So that settlement has only been excavated in little, little snippets, little trenches in which they could access it in spaces that weren't occupied by the later sanctuary. Most of what we know about the site comes from the cemetery because that was fully accessible and fully excavated. And that happens in a lot of places. Um, in the Mycenaean, in the Mycenaean, uh, Mycenaean archaeology. Okay, interesting. So these 20, I should clarify this point too before we continue further in the conversation. So these 20 to 25 um, sites on the mainland, um, what, what, what percentage of those would be in the Peloponnese Peninsula? size two that's a very rough number <laughs> I haven't sure. sat down and, and, and really counted up on a map but um, there is I would say those that we know of there probably are more in the Peloponnese maybe maybe 60 percent in the Peloponnese I will emphasize though that that is primarily due to research focus um, that there are likely to be the same kind of population density and settlement densities um, in other areas of, in, in Attica and in, uh, in Boeotia and Locris and Central Greece, but um, more for a longer period of time. There have been larger um, survey programs um, centered on looking at the Bronze Age in the Peloponnese, and I think that's why it seems like there's more now. But I don't, I don't think that's a real picture. I think that's just based on what we know right now. That's an interesting and important point that that you made, Kim. Okay, so the um, can you describe what a what a typical settlement would be in terms of so it's so it's still a bit of a lay of the land question. So so let, let's take a settlement that has a clear palatial building. Can you describe typically where the palatial building and you feel free to use a, a real example where the palatial building would be in that settlement? And then you, can you describe the uh, number of other units in that vicinity and what those units are, are known or believed to have been used for. Okay, so I'll, I'll go to Mycenae, so the site that I, where I work and the one that has given the civilization mm -hmm. its name as an example. Um, so the citadel of Mycenae, the fortified palatial area of Mycenae, sits on a, sits on a low hill and the um, the fortification wall runs around sort of the, the base of the hill, but not the, the lowest base of the hill, not in the valley, but, but partway up the hill. And the, the palatial building, which is a pretty um, sort of sprawling, multi-leveled, multi-terraced structure under several roof lines, uh, sits at the summit of the hill. And the Megaron is the sort of administrative official heart of it, but there are also within that structure, there are, um, there's definitely habitation areas, there are dining areas, there is like very likely an archive, a document archive. There are also craft production areas and large scale storage. All of that is, is within technically what is the palace 
at the, the summit of the hill. Then surrounding that within the fortification wall, there are maybe 20 to 25 large buildings that um, are also partially habitation, partially administrative, with lots of, of storage facilities, and in some cases, also areas of craft production. We have a few areas that are specialized. For instance, we have a, a group of five buildings that are oriented towards each other with a court, sort of a court system in the middle that are all dedicated to religious ritual. We call that the cult center of Mycenae. And that's all also located in these little groups of buildings within the fortification wall. So that's, that's the citadel of Mycenae. Then outside the citadel, there was also an extensive settlement. Um, we've only excavated about 10 buildings to date, uh, maybe we're up to 12 now, of the buildings outside the fortification wall, but still part of the settlement of Mycenae. But there were likely, um, I mean, there could have been 100 buildings originally, if we look at the full extent. We estimate that there were probably about 10,000 people living in that settlement um, between, uh, let's say, 1400 and 1200 BCE, so during the height of Mycenae's population um, during the, the palatial period. And those buildings are also interesting. Um, they all seem to have the same kind of makeup. In other words, we have, I can only think really of a couple of buildings that so far we only see evidence of habitation. All the others have a combination of habitation, craft production, and storage. Uh, we don't seem to have buildings that are only dedicated to storage. We don't have warehouses, for instance. Um, we also don't seem to have structures that are only craft, so we don't have factories. We have a combination. You live, you work, you store, primarily in the same locations. So it means in, in this area, which again is the, the top of the social um, hierarchy, being at the center of Mycenae and living at the center of Mycenae, um, they're quite extensive buildings with maybe 10 to 15 rooms. They are built in multiple stories, and again, they use the slopes to build over um, multiple levels as well, terraced levels. Um, there, of course, is economic difference. We have smaller houses, less well-made, maybe with more modest materials in them, and then of course going all the way up to the palace, um, which you can, you can imagine we should represent the height of the, the social hierarchy and the political hierarchy as well. So you get a lot of that variety. We also know that there are certainly elements of the society, um, the poor elements of society, there were certainly a slave population for which we, we don't see them yet in the archaeological record. We don't, we don't necessarily, can't necessarily at that site identify their housing, for instance. Okay. What you described there with Mycenae, is that an exception to the rule in any way when you review other Myce Mycenaean settlements, or is there a lot of consistency in, in the other settlements that have a palatial building? I would say that it is, it is more typical 
rather than exceptional. Um, it may be exceptional in the overall scale because so far the others have not um, proven to be as extensive. But again, because of the way excavation has happened over, over the last century plus, uh, we don't have the same amount of information. So for instance, at the palatial site of Pilos in the southwestern Peloponnese, we know that there is a surrounding settlement but it's only now just really being investigated to enough of an extent that we can, we'll be able to say more about it. Um, we know the Germans as well who, who excavated the site of Tiryns, they've been working over the last decade um, almost exclusively in their settlement of which their finding was incredibly, you know, it was also very extensive and, and went through some dramatic changes um, during the during the late Bronze Age, all of that, of course, is still unpublished. So we we still have a lot to learn. But the the overall pattern at palatial centers seems to be similar at, at each of the palatial palatial centers to some to some degree. The scale um, is is different from place to place. Is it thought that when you describe the and was it was it a um... Was it was it a palatial building and a and a citadel at my Mycenae or those two separate things? I want to clarify that point. Yeah, so a citadel is a fortified palace. So you have the the palace building, which we we call palace, and it is identified mostly by the central um, three room unit that we call the megaron, and then many many rooms levels so on moving out from that but that's its that's its heart that's its center so that's the palace building but then on the hillside you have many other buildings surrounding the palace and all of that is the citadel because it's enclosed within a fortification wall i understand thank 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 you for clarifying that point sure. so absolutely so, so when it in the palatial building um if we use the uh my mycenae example how many, how many, how many rooms uh, existed in, in it? And I believe you mentioned, for instance, there was crafts being done. Can you speak more about what what is known or believed uh, all the utilities that that building would have served uh, people of of this given time? Sure, and I will I will give two caveats. One is that not all of it has survived from the ancient period because of later building on the site. And that most of it, a good, good portion of it, was excavated in the 19th century, which means we have very little from those excavations. So we have to keep that, keep that in mind. Some of this is, is reconstruction. Um, in the central part of the building, when we move out from the Megaron, as I mentioned, the Megaron is, is three rooms that opens up onto a court. And surrounding that court, there are a series of rooms between five to 10 rooms. Um, around uh, two sides, two sides of the court. Um, ab above it, going uphill from that, there was originally uh, two stories, most likely, that uh, made up of the um, the habitation area for the family that lived in the palace at the summit of the hill. None of that has survived. We just have some cuttings in the bedrock to show where the rooms were, more or less. So we have another maybe four rooms with 
probably four rooms or maybe five rooms up on top of that. Then we have um, two wings that extend off of both to the north um, and to the, uh, the northeast and the, and the north that include um, three levels of construction which likely were in two stories, three possibly in the one, but probably two. And those are made up of um, a long series of rooms and then a corridor, and then opposite those rooms, another series of rooms across the corridor. And they are five to six rooms in each case. Evidence from, from these rooms suggests that craft was going on there production of stone vases, um, metal work, jewelry, um, some evidence for plaster, we're, we're not sure what they were, they were preparing to do plaster works in other, other parts of the site. Um, ivory working, these were all, all things that were going on, you know, in a wing of the palace, just, just off of the central administrative and habitation part of the palace. And then extending off of that, which was probably a separate building, but maybe attached under the same roof line, was again a two-story building of about six rooms on the, on the basement level, possibly the same number, or three rooms maybe on the top, that had, um, there was storage in those basements. But we don't know what was going on above because it didn't, they didn't survive. Um, so that's just a, that is a, a conservative estimate um, because we only have the foundations and in some cases only the basement foundations, we, we can't be 100% sure how much was tied together under single roof lines and how much, you know, how many um, floors of rooms we had originally. Is it believed or known if people lived in the palatial building? Yes. Certainly, people would have would have lived in the palatial building. Okay. Yes, whether it's one family or or multiple families, that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The the settle, set, I mean, the settlements in general, houses in general, seemed to be um, designed for. Families, what we might today call nuclear families or, or potentially somewhat extended families over, over a couple of generations. Um, and I say this in part because of the size, but also because of the tombs. That the people, the way that they bury their families in tombs seems to be similar to the makeup of the families that were probably living together as well. In some of these other sites, that have palatial buildings, using them as, as an example, is, is, it, is there commonality in the palatial building being multi-purpose? So there's probably people that live there, but there's also these various rooms for crafts. There's a, um, I believe you used the term mega, Megatron. Did I say that pro correctly? Uh, Megaron. Megaron, thank you. Megaron. Uh, so a, a, a Megaron. Is there, is there commonality at these, at these other um, um, sites? Yes, there is. Uh, both in the overall design with the Megaron at the center, usually opening into a court, and then with uh, rooms surrounding it that are multifunctional, and a second story, most likely for habitation, 
um, but also living spaces and again like you say craft spaces storage spaces so you get you know administrative so political social economic all of that happening under the under the same roof in these large central locations and that's true at, at all the sites we know of so far and so the so the, then the other buildings that it sounded like the the units that were in these sites they were they were multi-purpose in that they were used for residential but also commercial purposes is that a reasonable way to describe it in a lot of cases yes. i mean com commercial in the sense that they are producing things that are likely um administrated by the, by the palace by the the central authority um, we, we don't envision these people necessarily as independent um, producers in, in any way, but they, there's definitely residential and there's definitely production and storage going on in these other structures uh, that are within, both within the Citadel, but also many, many structures outside in the settlement, outside the fortification wall as well. And what is it about this civilization that scholars believe they weren't independently producing their crafts and i guess you know one of the one of the questions i guess you know when you when, when you talk about this is also well what what's the definition of independence right when you're when it comes to commerce so i guess if i was if i if i throw if i throw out a, a definition it's to create something and then to either create it or buy it from somewhere then to sell it and then profit from from that I'll I'll define that for this conversation as you know you're in, independent so is there something about this civilization that um, scholars believe really wasn't wasn't that that way there was more dependency um, with these uh, different units and the people that occupy those units to pre be producing those goods and perhaps profiting um, from those for for the um, for let's say a sovereign or or so, or or the, or or a, right. or a government, what are your thoughts right. there? Well, it's it's really very complex. Um, the the evidence that we have at these palatial sites, um, much of that comes from the Linear B tablets that write the earliest form of the Greek language in a but in a uh, idiomatic way that list for us, they're mostly economic documents and they, um, or inventory documents. And so we know that goods were being distributed and collected by um, the palace that is, that is, that are keeping these, the, keeping these documents. There definitely though is some level of independent production and, and consumerism. Um, and of course, before there was a palace, that had to be the model as well. The fact that during about 200 years, at least 200 years of the civilization, this was the, the socio-political and economic model that developed. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but we see, for instance, you mentioned the, I'll use as an example, my excavation at Mycenaeum, what we call Petz's house, which is named after an early excavator in the 50s that started, started work on the site. That is a, that is a building, a structure, in the settlement of Mycenae outside the citadel, so in the, in the main settlement. And it was a residential building, but it was also producing pottery. And our evidence from both the material itself, where the material ends up, the other um, 
sort of evidence from the building itself of, of the individuals that lived there and worked there suggests that they were probably independent. Um, the palace just happened to be one of their largest consumers, that they were definitely producing things, I think, on order for the palace, especially for export of things like perfumed oil that was a big commodity that had you know, very strong interest production and export interest from, from the palace. But there were a lot of things that were being made for the general population, for, for other people living in the settlement, um, cooking wares, for instance, uh, was one example. And, and so it showed that they had many different kinds of, of consumers, many different levels of consumers. And it does not seem to be an industry based on the linear B that was regulated or controlled by the palace at all. Would suggest that these producers did make a lot of the decisions, took a lot of the risks, must have had some kind of profit um, from it, but that we definitely have evidence that the palace was was involved by you know having things produced and and consuming some of their production. Um, where we still have a question, and I think there's still a lot more to be done about this, is understanding the mechanism of trade. Who is actually responsible for that? Locally, it's a little more it's a little easier to understand, and of course the the palace is kind of omnipresent at a site like Mycenae, but as you go further away uh, in the region, into other regions, and especially out into the Mediterranean, which of course is a huge amount of risk to be moving goods overseas, you know, so on and so forth, we don't yet know what that, how that worked. We, we don't think that was entirely the palace responsible for that, that there were there was a merchant class, let's say, that was doing some of that trading um, on a, at a farther distance in a larger scale. Okay, and I wanna clarify this before the, uh, we go to materials um, that were used sure. for the for the arch architecture. And I, and, sure. and I wanna make sure that um, this gets, get, get, gets in there for my sake too. So can you, can, you, um, can you clarify what a Megaron is, the actual structure of a Megaron? Yes, a Megaron is a, um, a three room structure. It's log longitudinally arranged, one room in front of the other that if you were entering, if you were entering a Megaron, you would first enter a porch that was held up by two columns, the, por the porch roof that opens onto a, a courtyard, so I'm coming from a courtyard. The and I would pass a doorway into a kind of narrow room. We call that the vestibule. We don't know exactly what it was, what it was used for other than it probably controlled access. You have another doorway you enter into a large square, roughly square room in which you have the ceiling held up by four columns and you have a large central hearth, an open fire in the center part of the room. And on the right-hand wall, as you enter the room and look to the right, in the center of the right-hand wall, would be the throne of the monarchs, of the ruler. Okay, I understand, thank you. Yeah, and this three-unit room is something that, this structure is something that can be repeated in many different buildings, in many, especially homes. Um, at different sizes and scales, and you know, it's kind of a kind of a common building block, right? It's what, what they sort of start from and then build out around or up above. And it's the largest and most sort of canonical version of it is the one we recognize as the Palace Megaron. The other Megarons 
um, that that so not just in palatial buildings they that megarons have been found in non-palatial buildings as well yes okay interesting so materials uh is there what, what were the common materials that were used to build these structures in the um uh with with the mycenaeans across the various sites that you're familiar with sure yeah um one thing i always say i always tell my students is that whether you were King Agamemnon or Joe Mycenaean, you built your houses exactly the same way, um, which is nice for us, architecturally speaking. Um, you build that by uh, founding on bedrock whenever possible because we're, we're building in a seismically active country, so building on bedrock is the most sensible thing to do. The foundations are made up of uh, field stone fit together, um, unworked field stone fit together, with a matrix of uh, basically mud. Um, it's what we call dry stone masonry. And then you have um, the upper, the walls and ceilings and upper floors made out of sun-dried mud brick. And that is fit onto the stone foundation using a framework of wood that's called, we call that timber frame architecture. So the wood, which is like a lattice work, there's both vertical, horizontal, and, um, and lateral beams of wood that help um, keep the, wood, the mud brick in a structure and then also founds it, um, connects it to the stone foundation below. And it allows for a very flexible wall system that will bend in seismic activity but will not break or collapse you hope up to us up to a certain point so everyone builds that builds that way and then depending on the size of your structure the your economic means for how much labor and materials you can expend um those will be elaborated in different ways you might have cut stone um ashlar masonry at the entry points or at the corners to make it mostly look better, although structurally it's good as well. Um, all of that timber frame mud brick has to be plastered. You have to keep it dry because it's sun-dried mud brick, has to be kept dry. So all the wall surfaces are plastered. And in many, many Mycenaean structures, the interiors are also then painted. Solid colors, designs, and, and also in some cases, figural scenes. And that latter point you made, that's for artwork, and is it also for um, uh, uh, religious purposes? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, we do have in our religious structures that we've identified as religious, We there are some instances with painted walls that, that very likely indicate some of the deities and, and some of the ritual practices, but the vast majority of ones that we find in structures are mostly decorative. Um, the ones from the palace probably recreate some of the important traditions and rituals connected to palace life, to, to the elite, to palace life, um, but not strictly religious. The process that you elaborated on, thank, thank you for, for providing that level of detail with the, with the materials and the, and the process to, to develop the buildings. Is, is, is that process cited to any earlier civilizations that scholars believe there was some influence in how the Mycenaeans uh, ended up building their buildings? 
Well, um, the style that they build in is, is very likely adapted from Crete, that the Minoans are <clears throat> earlier start working with timber frame architecture, um, and especially on the multiple stories. When we look at buildings from the Middle Bronze Age, which are the predecessors to the, the Late Bronze Age people that we call the Mycenaean civilization, they generally um, made smaller buildings, smaller independent structures of just a small number of rooms. Many times they were apsidal or semicircular at one end and, and not multi-story. So they, they didn't need as much timber in the walls themselves. They, they built more with mud brick and less with the framing. But as you start to have larger expanses of, of interior space, and of course, weight bearing for the upper stories, you that that um, timber frame helps to strengthen the whole structure. And that we know that was happening earlier on Crete. We also see it, of course, um, in the uh, the site of Akrotiri on the island that we know today as Santorini, um, which has actually survived because of the nature of that site to several several stories. So we see that that is an architectural style that certainly is um, adopted from very likely first on Crete, then the Cyclades, and, and ultimately on the mainland. Is there a final point or two that you want to cover, Kim, that we haven't talked about yet that you feel you're, you're, you're itching to share, you feel should be emphasized, that um, relates to settlements with the Mycenaeans? Um, I mean, I would just emphasize again that it is this settlements that we do know that we have been excavating and getting evidence from uh, shows a very complex picture of activity that that isn't it isn't just um, living space that that it's working space and and social space uh, in in a in a very interconnected way and we see that within for instance the settlement of of Mycenae I think we see how the different levels of society interacted and we have specialization of craft but clearly also extensive um, agriculture and and all of this um, is makes a, a palace center possible that the palaces although they're the ones that get all the excitement um, in scholarship um, and in public interest in a lot of ways they couldn't have existed without this you know, literally scaffolding underneath them, these, these extensive settlements that really produced everything that was necessary um, to keep moving forward and keep, keep life happening. Um, and then I also want to emphasize again that we still really only know the tip of the iceberg, that there is so much out there still to learn, and that I would say that's, that's really where the next generation of research is going to go in um, the Mycenaean world is, is moving out away from the centers and trying to understand the hinterland in a much more comprehensive way and understand those settlements for their own right, but also their networks and how they connected up um, socially and politically with the rest of the, the larger settlements and ultimately the palatial centers. Yeah, that definitely came through earlier and, and now as well. I, I think that's very, very interesting. 
Kim, and we, we covered both palatial and non-palatial buildings in this in this conversation today. I, I was going to ask, and I and we have time, so I'm going to ask the question now. Do you, was there, um, and then we can work our way to wrapping up the, the dialogue, um, t- temples, were, were, there, were there buildings that were, that were created purely for the sake of uh, worship? That is a great question. So I'm, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> and I alluded to earlier that um, there's an area within the Citadel of Mycenae that we call today, scholars call it the cult center. And it's a group of five buildings that all seem to show some kind of religious paraphernalia and activity. Um, but not really any evidence for habitation by the population of the site itself. Um, and, I, and I would call those, at least a few of them, with, with installations, religious installations like altars um, and areas for, for presenting gifts to the deities' votives. Um, I would call those temples. And what, I, what we mean by that is, and it's really what the definition of temple was in the later historical Greek world as well, is that it is the home of the god. And so in the Mycenaean world, the buildings, if you only found the foundations, are really indistinguishable from the other structures that, that people are living in. But when you find the features, the materials that are in them, you realize that this was a specialized structure for religious practice and very likely dedicated to a single deity. So in, in that sense, it is the home of the God. Uh, and therefore we would, um, we would think of that as a temple. We have not found very many outside of the centers so far. And we don't really have a lot of evidence of this kind of religious structure from earlier in the Mycenaean world before there were palaces. I suspect that, that there were some, and we just haven't found them yet, but the, the nature of the palace itself and, and the way that it uh, sort of organized society meant that an organized religious sector made up of little temples, um, what we might call a sanctuary, was also an, a, an important part of that, that they physically produced uh, within the citadel. Okay. Um, links and resources. Would it be possible, Kim, in, in, for for those that are listening and want to learn more about this this subject? Is there a, is there a few um, links uh, or references to to um, publications that you could send me and I can put in the show notes for those listening? What whether to some of the work that you're doing at these places and or third party material? Sure, absolutely. Okay. I'm very happy to do that. Okay, wonderful. Thanks thanks for coming on the show today, Kim. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. So again, everybody, as mentioned moments ago, Dr. Shelton is going to provide a few links that are related to this topic, and I'll drop them in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Kim and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.